Hi, I'm, my name is Bill Laycock, and this is my life, wildlife. I'm a wildlife biologist at the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I focus primarily on mammals and currently a caribou, moose, fox, doll sheep, but we also have polar bear, brown bear, black bear, and numerous other mammals. I'm particularly interested in bears, okay? And I always have been ever since fourth grade. It's kind of silly. My In fourth grade, I made a, a leather keychain for my mom, for example. You know, and it was with tandy leather and stuff, and you make pictures on it and stuff like that. And usually you'd make something with flowers and stuff like that on it and give it to your mom. Well, I did a bear. <laughs> and get it to me. I just remember some of my friends just mocking me out for that. We grew up in, well, up until I was about 15, in northeastern Ohio in a place called the Headlands, which was just this little island of dry land between a big marsh and Lake Erie. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time playing out, outdoors and stuff, but uh, <laughs> nothing like the wildlands of other places. As a child, every year we'd go up to Ontario on these remote lakes, and my dad was really into fishing, so we'd go fishing and stuff. You know, it's a bunch of lakes and creeks and rivers connect, you know, connected it. But then you can find these backwater marshes and swamps and things, and I was canoeing back in there alone and uh, through these cattails and all this grass and stuff, just little paths going of water going through this through this, this swamp and stuff, and I heard this slurpy, like something pulling things out of the out of the mud and, and chewing and stuff and I paddled up and paddled up and I saw a black bear run off and then over there in front of me was a, a moose pulling uh, pulling lilies out of the swamp and munching on those. That was quite a that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that as a as a kid. That that was that was pretty nice. My uh path to, to Arctic's kind of convoluted in many ways. I've been a biologist essentially since the early 80s. I was an agricultural and forestry extension agent in northeastern Thailand. I was working with the USAID project as a Peace Corps volunteer. So I was there for about four years, then went back to, went back to grad school and, and uh, then returned back to Southeast Asia as a Fulbright scholar in northern Thailand working with a small hill tribe an indigenous uh, group in the in the mountains of northern Thailand, the Lawa. This is one of the first ethnic groups to have settled in Thailand. Okay, they they were there before the Thai actually moved in from southern China. And the Lawa are really known for their conservation swiddening techniques. Most people think of swiddening as slash and burn. Okay, where they cut down the forest and plant their crops. But they had protection forests in different places. And uh, this is part of their animist religion, too, to protect these, these forests um, and the forest spirits that lived in those forests. So, and they had a long, originally a long rotation of about 20 years. They'd slash a secondary growth and then come 20 years later, come back to that same place. So they weren't slashing and burning primary forests. They were conserving primary forests along ridgetops, along ravines, and along rivers. But with population pressure and other other people moving into the mountains that had originally been their land, they had had to shorten these rotations down to seven to 10 years. And that was having some adverse impacts, not only on their economic well-being, but also on, on the forest. I had been working in Laos for about five and a half years or so. And I uh, decided that I wanted to go back to grad school for back to wildlife. So I got an opportunity to do that and do some research in Kamchatka, Russia. 
and that was all on, on bears in the bear salmon ecosystem. It was in an area where nobody had ever done any hardcore research before. When my wife and daughters and I got over there, it became quite apparent that there was a lot of poaching going on, both poaching for brown bears, for gallbladders and other, other parts. But even more importantly, probably, the primary poaching was going on for sockeye salmon caviar. This was a, a protected area. Poachers were being helicoptered in and uh, setting up camp. And these sockeye salmon runs, oftentimes they're on creeks that are just two feet wide or, or whatever. And, the, and these are very important for the health of the brown bear population, okay? They need sockeye salmon in order to maintain their health, to get as big as they get, to produce as many offspring as they produce. It's critical. The sockeye salmon runs there drive the ecosystem, not just for bears, but for other animals too, both aquatic and terrestrial. Anyway, my wife and I were doing a lot of work and we were always running into evidence of poaching. We came across 14 different camps, for example, one year. There's not much that I could do, and I was a little bit leery about telling who I could trust within the Russian bureaucracy or Russian government about this. A gentleman came over to make a film on our project, Bears of the Russian Front. During that, I wanted to emphasize the threat that this poaching of the sockeye salmon would make to the bear population and to the whole ecosystem. And so a good bit of that was highlighted in the film. It was broadcast in England, it was broadcast in the U.S. on Discovery Channel, on National Geographic, and, and some other places. All of my research and stuff may not have had a whole lot of impact, but I think that that film that we did and emphasizing the threats of the poaching situation had an impact. Nowadays, they've got a, a really good park ranger program going on in the South Kamchatka Sanctuary, and they've got visitors coming there for bear viewing. It's the best bear viewing place in the world. The poaching has virtually been eliminated. And I, I like to think that maybe the film that I helped with, I think for sure it had an impact. My project in Kamchatka had come to an end and I was looking for a job and a job opened up with the National Park Service actually initially as the Inventory and Monitoring Coordinator. Then my first job with Fish and Wildlife Service was in Bethel with Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. And then in 2006 through 2018, I, I worked in Kodiak. And of course, Kodiak is known for its bears, its bears and salmon. If you're not a threat, you're able to allow bears to look at you as not a threat, as and they become more tolerant of you. And that gives you all kinds of opportunities. If you're patient and take precautions and don't think of them as teddy bears, gives you all kinds of opportunities to observe behavior. They're incredible creatures. I mean, they're thinking, they've got their own personalities. They're sentient beings. For example, you'd see sows, different, different females with cubs, with kids, okay? Each sow, each mother, how good they're at and the way that they raise their kids is totally different, okay? You've got the doting mothers, where they all just never leave their their cubs out of sight. And you got the other mothers that are kind of just ignore them and they, the cubs are running all over the place and getting into trouble and stuff. Well, there was a sow that I met in 2006 when I first moved to Kodiak. We called her Broken Ear. She had three spring cubs on her. Spring cubs were cubs that were born that spring. I was watching her 
on the uh, Carlick River, and there was a cabin there, and there was a couple men there that were painting themselves as photographers, and they were good photographers, but they were doing something that was wasn't quite kosher, if you will. They were catching fish and then put the, putting them in front of their cabin to entice bears to come closer so they could get close-up pictures of them. Well, Broken Ear saw this and stuff, and she never, she knew the rules. She knew how to behave among people. She's lived among people for, for ages. She saw what they were doing, and she would not go anywhere near where they were piling up these fish in front of their cabin. And her cubs weren't either. But one of the cubs, the little ornery little one, kind of walked up, kind of sneaked up to where those guys had laid the, that pile of fish and grabbed one and then came back. And uh, Broken Ear was watching, watching him the whole time. He came back close to her. She swatted him in the ass as if to tell him, you don't do that crap. And then pushed them and they walked off down the stream. And I've seen, that's just like one small example. The main thing I'm working with now is uh, in cooperation with Canadian colleagues and uh, USGS colleagues is the porcupine caribou herd, which um, has some of the longest migrations of any land mammal in the world. They spend part of their time over in, in the Yukon Territory and the Northwest Territories way over there. And then they migrate way over in the springtime, typically, not every year, from, from the Yukon and Northwest Territories over there in Canada, over to the coastal plains here in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And that's where they give birth to their calves. And by the beginning of July, then they start moving into different places. And currently they're right in the Brooks Range, in the, on the south side of the Brooks Range. Two weeks ago, they were over in Canada. The calving period, the post-calving period, and the insect relief period are very, very important to the caribou. Okay, so there's extreme demands placed on the cows at that time because they're, they drop their calf, they've got to lactate, they've, so they've got to consume as much high-quality food as they can, forage as they can. And that's why they're moving to the coastal plain at, the, at this time, the coastal plain in the northern foothills. We're trying to get some detailed data, some detailed information on their diet patterns. Why do they move to the coastal plain? What areas do they go to? What species are they, are they eating? The importance of this is with climate change, of course, that's likely to shift. So we wanna be able to predict where they're gonna go, where, what areas are gonna be most important to them during this critical period of time in 30 years, in 20 years, in 50 years. Okay, we need to know that so that we can develop management plans to ensure the health of the herd. Interestingly enough, just this past spring, from the end of May through the beginning of July, we were out collecting scat samples, or fecal samples, if you will, and we sent them off to a lab where they can actually look at the scat or these fecal samples and determine exactly what species of plants they had been eating. So in the future, next year, what we'll do is we'll go out there and we want to look at a couple different things at least. We want to know what the nutrient content is at that time. It changes over the year, what the phenology is, and what the biomass of those important plants are. The porcupine caribou herd is very important for subsistence for native peoples in Canada and for native peoples in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Experts in climate change modeling, they can model what the landscape is gonna be like into the future. So we, we, are, we hope to be able then to identify areas that are gonna be important to them in 10, 20, 30, 50 years. 
and then we'll be able to take management actions or management plans to make sure that those areas are going to be available to them in the future and that connectivity across the landscape will be man maintained. So we don't create any barriers or carry out activities on currently important areas or what we think will be very important or increasingly important areas in the, in the future. I just love being present around these mammals, whether it's doll sheep or moose or caribou or bears and watching them and observing them. It's just it's something that I never, never get bored of. And I learn something every time I'm sitting down there or standing there watching and observing animals. Not related to radio collaring and looking at their movements across the landscape, but just watching how they behave, how they move and how about they, they go about living. Why should anybody in the lower 48 or somewhere else care about what's happening up here with the land? Sometimes we fall into this trap to always try to justify it in either economic terms or in how it's going to benefit the American public. That's not the only value there is to it. And I think there's a little bit of a too strong of a trend of us always evaluating and how is it going to be, how is it going to give us pleasure or economic benefit, whether it's wilderness or whether it's caribou or, or whatever. They have value in and of themselves, regardless of how they're going to benefit humans. And I think we need a little bit of a paradigm shift or an attitude change. It's not all about people. This has been My Life Wildlife, a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman for Citizen Race Car, audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, the employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land and the people who love and depend on it.